Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens. My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me five seemingly insignificant things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule for posterity, or even for their own pleasure. But it's not all pleasure. They can choose four things that they treasure, but they also have to pick one thing that they wish hadn't happened or existed. And we also lock that away. Playing this game of reminiscences with me in this episode is the actor Clive Mantle. Clive is probably best known for his highly acclaimed long stint as Dr. Mike Barrett in Casualty and Holby City, and for playing Little John in the series Robin of Sherwood. He was also the man who won Dawn French's heart in The Vicar of Dibley. But he's had an extraordinarily broad and full career in films, on television and in the theatre. He's worked with the RSC, been nominated for an Olivier Award for his role as Lenny in Of Mice and Men, been in One Foot in the Grave, Drop the Dead Donkey, Sherlock, Binder, Bottom with Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson, Game of Thrones, Superman 4, Alien 3, The Poseidon Adventure, and is now an award-winning author with his Freddie Malone books, The Treasure at the Top of the World and A Jewel in the Sands of Time. Perhaps most notably, in the film White Hunter Black Heart, he was the first man in cinema history to beat up Clint Eastwood and live to the end of the film. I spoke to Clive in the kitchen of his home, where he'd been day and night, it seems, for some time, looking after a litter of puppies. And between feedings, we talked about the things that Clive treasures. And here is our conversation. 
So, Clive, Clive Mantle, how lovely of you to invite me into your gorgeous house full of puppies. Uh, it is puppies wherever you look. I'm, a, I'm afraid we are lumbered with the kitchen because I've got to be uh, on hand uh, at a moment's notice to sort them out. We have seven working cocker puppies. <sighs> Four weeks old today, and they are absolutely dominating life. They're, they're gorgeous. They are gorgeous. They scurry around <laughs> in the background. So uh, there could be uh, a lot of edit points as I <laughs> jump up to attend to their every need. <laughs> or I'll put together a tape of puppy noises. <laughs> yes, exactly, which would probably be a lot more interesting <laughs> than anything I've got to say, I have to tell you. In this, I'm going to ask you to take five things and put them in a time capsule. These are five things that are personal to you from your life. And four of them are things that you've enjoyed or treasured or even just found funny. Mm -hmm. And one of them is something that you're really (laughs) keen to lock away. Can I just... uh, I won't start with that. You can if you want to. No, no, I I want to get it. (laughs) I want to build up to it. You're so keen. Go on, go for it. Go on, chuck it in. It's trifle. 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 I I was torn between broad beans, uh, beetroot and trifle. They're about the only three things on the planet that I won't eat. But trifle, I think, is the work of the devil. (laughs) The the mixture of uh, consistencies and textures all in one spoonful. If I could maybe just eat the cream with the spoon and then eat the fruit bit with the spoon and then eat the sponge, but the sponge is soaked in the... And altogether, it's just a mishmash of, uh, of awfulness. Do you think if you served it to you just bit by bit... So you like cream? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, and I know, uh, maybe on something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not terribly keen on no. cream. Custard? No, if I, if I have a crumble... I have to have it absolutely nude. I can't have ice cream with it, cream or anything like that. Oh, right. Crumbles, you know, it's, you're, not, you're not there for the ice cream with a crumble. You're there for the crumble, right. surely. Yeah, you know. Uh, and I feel the same about trifle. I think, I, think it's an, I think it was a leftover mishmash of things left in a fridge and a cupboard, which someone just threw in a bowl because they had relations coming round. <laughs> In the 1950s, on a Sunday afternoon. What have we got in the fridge? And they had a glass bowl with those dimples on it. Do you remember those? Yeah, horrible. Yeah, yeah. uh, Green. Yeah, just so that you didn't drop them. I think, actually, that was their only function. But, uh, no, every trifle should be dropped, I think. And people put awful things on top of them, don't they? I don't mind trifle if it's got a few strawberries on top or raspberries, but they put sort of chocolate sprinkles. Yeah, no, I mean... Hundreds and thousands. Awful, awful. I mean, Crunchy little bits of colour. <laughs> it's. It, it, I'm getting even more angry about trifle the more we speak about it. <laughs> the more I remind I, you of the details. Yes, I had sort of kept it under wraps for many years, and I, I, I don't often get the chance to be angry about trifle. But I'm really grateful that today I've been able to vent my, <laughs> my spleen about it. But does that go right back to childhood? It does. I think I must have been. Sir, I think it's probably a grandmother, my father's mother, who was a, a wicked, evil woman. <laughs> who, who, uh, who would take great delight in causing people pain and misery. I think she probably inflicted a very dodgy trifle at an early age, uh, which, is, which has turned me. No, I don't blame you. I mean, <clears throat> if, if people could cook, they would make suet or those sort of things, you no, know, like I'm, a sponge. Well, no, I, see, I like that. I like sponge. and I, I see, I can take a sponge with treacle soaked into mm. it. That seems a very, very, very sensible thing to do. So I think that that's what people do if they can cook. But if they can't cook, then a trifle is a thing you make. My mum couldn't cook, and we would have trifle oh, every really? Sunday. Really? Yes, that was her dessert, a go-to dessert. And when would she make it? She would make it the day before. Like, she also would make the Sunday lunch. 
<laughs> and then and put it in the fridge. For- <laughs> no, just make it. And then she had one of those, <laughs> one of those trolleys. Oh, hostess trolley. Hostess trolley. And things would go in there for, the, for <laughs> overnight. <laughs> or, or you'd bring out stuff from the previous Sunday that, that had been forgotten. The you, stuffing that was still in the bottom layer. Very much so. Of course, this is before the days of microwaves. Yeah. So in order to keep something hot, you either put it in the oven or she put it in the hostess trolley. <laughs> Which, of course, I mean, everything was awful. No, yeah. uh, Vegetables that had been cooked hours and hours before and then kept in this thing. I loathe Brussels sprouts. But I think really I loathe Brussels sprouts because her Brussels sprouts were so awful. Well, for Christmas dinner, they were started in August sometime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and boiled until yeah. Christmas. Yes. So they were just a mush. Yes, with her old aprons and things like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, no, I'm partial to a sprout. So uh, I really was torn, though, between uh, broad beans. I love fresh broad beans when you peel them. They are absolutely fantastic. But yeah. as soon as they hit water and are boiled, they become this grey, uh, awful, powdery texture, which I can't take. I really don't like that. Uh, and so be- broad beans, do you grow broad beans? No, broad? I have done. And, uh, and uh, you sit, sit down the garden, peel them and eat them. Absolutely, you know, peel the little grey right, skin off it and eat the beautiful green pea inside. So that's, that's fantastic. But, oh, her, oh the, the puppies are waking the up. Are, uh, and beetroot is just... I don't understand beetroot in any shape or form. Can't I just can't take the taste? There are a lot of different types of beetroot, though. Have, oh, you, no. have you have you gone down there and no once you decide? <laughs> I think I think uh, I think that would be dangerous. <laughs> I think I don't want to have my head turned at this late stage. I'm sixty-two. I don't I <laughs> don't want to start. No, I don't want to start loving it. I've been very firm in my views all these years, many decades of uh, anti beetroot stance and i don't want to change now see i know a beetroot called a codgia the thing about the codgia is that it looks like a little pink ball not a not a sort of not purple purple, pink and as you slice it it has rings in it so pink white pink white it looks beautiful on the plate but it still tastes like beetroot yeah and does it leak? You see, that's what, I, that's what I worry about. I mean, I don't mind a bit of beetroot as decoration because I can understand, I, you know, I like a colourful plate. But if some of the juice from the beetroot leaks down into other things, yes. then it's infected. It's infecting the other <laughs> things on the plate. You, I can't do that. You know, that would, be, that would be a major mistake. I can look at it, but I don't want to touch it or have any of its leaky juice anywhere near my other stuff. OK, so we're going to take all varieties, <laughs> okay. all varieties of beetroot. Yeah. I'm going to lock them away in the time <laughs> capsule. So if I could take every beetroot, broad bean and trifle on the planet in the time capsule and then just accidentally lose them in space. OK, well, let's move on then. Let's see what your second item would be. And it's something I'm desperately in love with, and that is Wiltshire. I have been a devotee of it now since the mid-80s. I came down here uh, on a theatre tour, or early 80s, and then uh, back for Robin and Sherwood, which was all filmed around uh, Bristol. In fact, anywhere where there was a bit of old castle wall, we used to (laughs) film an episode of Robin and Sherwood up against it. Um, So so that spread into Wiltshire and over into Wales, Somerset, all over the place. But I particularly love Wiltshire. It's a quite forgotten county. People drive through it. The people are always on their way to Devon. They're always on their way to, which I love, but they're always on their way to Cornwall, again, which I love, and they forget 
that Wiltshire is there, or they, it's, it's a service station, or it's, oh, look, there's Stonehenge, or, and, they, and they're past it, and that's all they think Wiltshire is. But it's the most glorious county. The blots on the landscape are few and far between. Uh, glorious countryside. A lot of sort of mystical elements, which I appreciate. I'm not, uh, I'm not led by them, but I understand how important they are to other people. But uh, I think 11 of the 13 white horses, you know, the chalk white horses in the mm. country are in Wiltshire. Uh, we've got Avebury, we've got um, Silbury Hill, we've got Stonehenge. We've got all these wonderful, wonderful ancient sites which predate the pyramids, uh, some of them. You know, I mean, they, they, they are glorious. I drove past Stonehenge this morning yeah. on the way to, to see you. Yeah. And I'd forgotten how many um, burrows or barrows are they called barrows? Or uh, they're uh, burial mounds. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh. all all the way around, but all over Wiltshire, you'll find those. If if you see a a ring of trees on top of a hill, you can guarantee that in the centre of that there'll be two or three burial mounds of right. you know where a highfalutin family of the time were buried with their bronze dagger. <laughs> and I suppose they've all been examined. Uh, I think they probably have, yes. Um, Because they look undisturbed. Silbury Hill is is an amazing thing. It was the largest man-made hill in the world for many, many, many centuries. I think some king in Spain has built built one uh, bigger now. But why? There's nothing inside it. They examined it. There's no remains in it. It's purely a mound of, I think, chalk. For you know, it's in a line: Avebury, Silbury Hill, Stonehenge. Yes. Um, it's in you know, it's in a direct line. But why? You know, what? Just so they could stand on top and be the first ones to see the sunrise on a certain day. You know, it's. I stood on the the central stone of Stonehenge the day before the summer solstice, so oh. only one day off, and uh, was filmed with the sun setting between my legs. Oh, I know. What was that for? It was for a programme about England. It was a documentary about England and the extraordinary places in it. Wonderful. And I went all around the country filming things. But I think I probably was one of the last people to actually... To be allowed to do it. To be allowed to do it. Nobody, at that time, people weren't allowed to touch them or go in, but I was allowed to stand on the central... And, you, and carve MFS in, yeah. in the stone with your penknife. Of course, the Victorians did. Oh, they uh, yeah. I mean, all over it is... Yeah. Uh, that, uh, Bits of stone missing. Yeah, they, just, yeah. they would chip them off and take them home. Well, Avebury is a classic point. I mean, there's all these c- circles within circles, and then you know, if someone needed a <laughs> needed a hut or a house, they just take one of these. Take it down perfectly. Take, yeah, perfectly cut stone. Stone. Yeah, yeah. There's something that they told me when I was doing this that I thought was extraordinary. That's it. That's a good point. <laughs> And that's that. There is a moss growing on the Stonehenge rock, which is unique, mm. unique to Stonehenge. So they believed that when it was brought from Wales, Wales yeah. it came with this moss growing. It had the spores in the, yeah. within it. Yeah, and it was there. And so it then grew in this part of the, the world oh, and continued to grow, but it's actually died out from where it actually originally came. In Wales? In Wales. It's gone. It's gone or changed or grown into something yeah. else, as they do, because it's, you know, 5,000 years. Yeah. So things develop, but this, the moss in Stonehenge is still the same. Yeah. And actually, one of the reasons they're worried about the road is because it is killing the moss. Yes, I mean, I, they're talking about putting this tunnel in, aren't they? So yeah. I, I don't know if that's got the go-ahead or not, but you, you, are they either going to put a housing estate there or they're going to build the uh, tunnel? <laughs> <laughs> Stonehenge close. Exactly. <laughs> Stony close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Wiltshire is glorious. And you're slowly turning into Terry Pratchett. <laughs> well, where, did, where was he? Where was his... Devises, I think. Was he? Devises? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. 
another writer and divider. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, I wonder uh, how well he did. <laughs> whatever happened. Um, um, it was a brave decision then, because any actor yeah. feels they need to be London-based. So to come out yeah. and say, no, I'm going to move out, and that's Yes, uh, uh, um, I had no worries about that at all, actually. I mean, it's, you know, I was probably 29, 30 by the time I moved out of London, and I had... Uh, I'd sown all the wild oats I was going to sow (laughs) or be allowed to sow. I was uh, one of those people in in London who, yes, I I used to go out a fair bit, but a lot of the time I would be in my flat with lots of other people in flats all around me. Mm. If you don't like London life, then London could be quite torturous. It is, and quite lonely, and uh, incredibly lonely, uh, yeah, uh, at times. So I I was very glad to get out. Especially with the pressure that actors have of of will I ever work again, Yeah, which happens after almost every job. I know. I think also it was a different time in my career where, you know, people were looking for me. I was a sort of go-to person for a while. I, I could have lived anywhere and still had the amount of work that I had. And you did the sort of jobs that actually were quite long-term. Yeah. Which is always good, isn't it? And living in Wiltshire was just absolutely perfect for Casualty, which was in Bristol at the time. My my audition for Casualty was hysterical because we didn't talk about the part or anything like that. They just said, so where do you live? I said, well, you know, I live in Box near Bath. I went, oh, that's that's quite close. I said, said, it's lovely. Well, it'll take me about half an hour to get in. You know, I'll be able to record my lines on tape and, and I'll be able to learn my lines as I'm driving in. Said, That's great. And, then, you know, I think they were just very pleased that someone might have learnt their lines by the time <laughs> they, they got to the studio floor. But uh, so we never talked about the character or anything like that. We just talked about how what a convenient job it would be for me. And how much they didn't have to pay the London travelling costs. Exactly. <laughs> but obviously it was an audition. They were just seeing what sort of bloke I was. Uh, they, yes. were, they wanted a contrast to uh, uh, Nigel LeVay who'd been there before, whose character was quite uptight and uh, strict and formal and I think they wanted a little more relaxed approach to <laughs> I acted with Nigel Levain as a student oh uh, it was Oxford yes Oxford, yes. Yeah. yes he played uh, Bolingbroke oh. in uh, oh, some Shakespeare play oh, Henry the Fourth part something that's it Yes. Probably one, is it? Part one? Yeah, I think it is part one, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think I probably played... Uh, oh, no, I did. I played Hal. <gasps> I know. Love. I could have been an actor. <laughs> I really could have been a proper actor. Blimey. Well, that's fantastic. Mm. He was the one person... There were several people at... Uh, you know when you're yeah. young and you come across young actors and you think, oh, that's the one that's going to go places. There were some in my life, the ones that I thought were obviously going to become successful actors. Nigel Levaitland, Tim McInerney. Tim McInerney, I was going to say Tim. And Emma Thompson. Oh. So I wasn't I wasn't far out, really, no, was I? And nobody ever said to me, Mike, you're going to become a really successful actor. So they weren't far out either. They were. You Listen, mate, for us to still be breathing and still be paying our equity subscriptions <laughs> after all these years is pretty uh, pretty amazing, isn't it? Really? It is. It is amazing. I, I am one of those actors who thinks, well, that's it then. Every time I do a, a job, I think, well, that was great. Yeah. And what fun I've had. Yeah. Uh, and now I'll have to think of something else. <laughs> for a proper job. Yeah, even today I was driving through <laughs> through the lovely wheelchair. I saw someone turn a corner in a car, and they looked to me as if they were, I don't know why, as if they were actually going to go and work in a pub. And I thought, I could do that. Yeah, yeah. I'd be quite happy doing that. Yeah. To know that each day I would get up and go, right, I'll just go and serve some sandwiches and pour some pints tidy the place up a bit and then come home. How lovely. The master of the ploughmans. Yeah. Yeah. God, how lovely. 
Uh, uh, there's a lot to be said for simplicity and uh, o- over time, you know, uh, it, it can get complicated, you know, especially if you're trying to juggle family and being away on the theatre tour or whatever it is. Sometimes the simplicity of knowing I've got to paint the outside of the house. Yes. You know, I've got to get up at eight in the morning. I've got to, if it's, as long as it's not raining, that's what I'll be doing. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to stop and have a sandwich. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to listen to the radio and I'm going to do it. And it's going to be wonderful. That's that's, that's very true. It's one such of the best, a lovely contrast. To, one of the best things I've done recently was uh, there's I laid a patio at the back of my garden and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was one of the crazy best. Crazy paving. No, no, proper, proper, <gasps> proper paving. Have you, very level and everything. Have you invited famous friends around to put their hands and footprints in your <laughs> So, there hasn't been an official opening yet. <laughs> Obviously, well, the Queen is a very busy of woman. Of course. Been more course. busy than she was yeah. before Harry. Yeah, she's got a lot to sort out. Yeah. So, I, you know, well, I'm holding back on that, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, so, Wiltshire, I, I love it. I love it to pieces, and I can't imagine not living here, you know, uh, it being my base, really, for the rest of my life. I love it. Yeah. Fantastic. So we will put Wiltshire. Hurrah! The county of Wiltshire Arr. is going into the time capsule. We're going to take a short break here for some adverts, hopefully, but we'll be back with you very shortly. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else Clive Mantle would like to put into his time capsule. My next thing is Test Match Special, (laughs) which I have to say, I mean, I've had a lot of very, very lovely jobs in my life and uh, mixed with a... Some incredibly entertaining and uh, um, the repartee, the bon vivers, the stories in in theatre companies and green rooms up and down the length of the country are fantastic. But I have never been in a workplace where people are enjoying themselves 
as much as the people I witnessed in the test match special box. I was I was lucky enough to be invited on view from the boundary, one of their mm. guests, and it was just a an enormous privilege. But to sit there for a day and watch them banter, watch them play practical jokes on each other while they're on the microphone, they'll be passed all sorts of notes, <laughs> which of course they haven't vetted before they did. So they're commentating on and over of you know. And uh, looking down and reading out a note from Mrs. So-and-so of wherever. And completely fictitious, you know, <laughs> rude words all it. And they get three quarters of the way through this message and realise that they've been had. And, and just everyone in the box bursts out laughing. I mean, an incredible atmosphere. People popping in and out, international you know, megastar cricketers, you know, Viv Richards and both of them, all these people yeah. one wafting in, grabbing a bit of cake sitting down for 10 minutes, shaking hands with everyone. You know, absolutely no side, no... Ego. No ego. Just fantastic. What a... what a, And I'm sure it... Because um, I listened when I was at school. It was a, a staple of our afternoons, uh, piling out of lessons. And as we played cricket on the lawn, whatever it was, you'd be listening to John Arlott talking about Dolivera and, wow. you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, still makes the hairs go up on the back of my neck, you know, just li- thinking of his voice talking about it. Uh, and I think they set the standard and it's been maintained beautifully over the years. And it's a great comfort. Even people who have never played cricket, have never been to a cricket match, have learnt about cricket through listening to it, but they learn about so many other things, you know, because cricket takes up about five percent of the of the conversation. I, I was always uh, I was always a captain of cricket at, at stages in my school days, and I learnt all my tactics from listening to the radio. It sounds like I'm name dropping, but I got to know the Worcester cricket team very, very well. And I got, I was sat in the pavilion. Tim was out, and he came down and sat with me. We were watching the play, and, he, and we were talking tactics. And I was, ta- and I was holding my own with the captain of Worcester, saying, you know, what the conditions were like, and what, what who was being most effective of their bowlers, and you know, and I, I saw he, he looked at me a couple of times like. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. That was all down to Test Match Special. (laughs) Fantastic. Did did you play cricket at school? I played at school. I I was very much uh, captain second eleven. My knowledge was height. Yes, I had height, but I was one of those terrible bowlers who collapsed in my bowling action. So (laughs) I could have been four foot six, uh, and uh, still delivered the ball from the same place. (laughs) I was I was so exhausted by the time I got to the stumps. That I released the ball from about waist height. I did once face a ball from Michael Holding. Yeah. It was terrifying because he was bowling a slow ball, obviously, because we were useless. (laughs) And he was being very kind. And then I think somebody goaded him. So he he went to the boundary. No. He walked back and kept walking to the boundary. And then he came charging towards me. And I was starting to tremble by the time he got there. I thought, please don't Don't. really let one go. It'll kill me. (laughs) And he put his body back and then his arm came over and then he just released a real dolly. Oh, how clever. And I missed it. Oh, no. (laughs) I I used to play for the Bunburys. For those who don't know, it's a showbiz sort of charity team. Mm. Uh, But we used to play with the most incredible people. But we played one charity match and Devon Malcolm was bowling to me. I was just in. Someone had been out in a Devon Malcolm over and I was next to him begging not to be... (laughs) I haven't got my pads on yet. <laughs> but no, I had to go out. 
And again, he did that thing of standing back on his full run and almost like snarling like a bull, you know, like yes. the, scraping his foot on the turf. And the crowd was just, you know, just going, yeah. Kill like him, gladiator. kill him. Yeah, it was gladiatorial. <laughs> and he ran in. And as he delivered the ball, he went, down the leg. He told me he was going to bowl it down the leg. Oh, so it came, it came at full pace. I mean, I never saw it, but it whistled a good foot, foot and a half down the leg side. Uh, so I was in absolutely no danger, ex- except in the uh, in the laundry department. <laughs> <laughs> How sweet of him. So I've been lucky enough to play in some amazing... I've played at the Oval and I've played wow. at Worcester and caught Graham Hick on the boundary when he was on 86. <laughs> diving catch, caught Graham Hick. That's good enough, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that, yeah. that would do yeah, if, yeah. if I'd only done that, I, know. I think. Yes, that, that is my sporting highlight. No, I love it. The game is fantastic, and Test Match Special has been the most glorious companion, I would say. You know, uh, I would time jobs, domestic jobs, around a Test Match, knowing if I've got a couple of rooms to paint, I think, oh, that'll just be a... That's, that's a nice... That'll start at the beginning nice, of the Test. Yeah, let's hope it goes to five days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lovely. Yeah, great stuff. So, yes, we will definitely put Test Match Special. Oh, oh God bless them. Yeah. In it goes. How lovely. Um, Marvellous. Yeah. So that's three things we put in. I know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm choosing rather large things. The next are the Himalayas. I wonder if we could get the those. Himalayas. Can, can we get those in? <laughs> <You> can... <laughs> uh, well, my, why my, not? My love of open spaces is uh, further illustrated by my absolute passion for all things Nepal, Nepalese, Himalayas, Everest in particular. Obviously, Everest was what drew me to the Himalayas, but then having been there a few times in a couple of treks, it's actually the people, it's the Nepalese people that I find the most majestic. Despite being not the most, you know, statuesque, they are the most wonderful, wonderful, huge personalities, huge people, kind, uh, generous they have absolutely nothing, you know. I mean, mm. to, to walk through these villages. On the way up to Everest, I remember walking past a, a little tea house built against the side of a rock, big drop on the, on the left hand side. And the bloke obviously wanted to build an extension. So he wanted another room on his tea house. And he was chipping away at this rock. And he had one mallet and he had one chisel. And he'd made, you know, he'd, he'd done a couple of square yards by the time we got to him. And we all looked at each other and thought, oh. Got a bit of a job on his hands there. And um, probably two weeks later, we walked back past him, and he, you know, he'd done another substantial bit, but he was still a, a long way from the completed uh, thing. And he's probably still there now. This is nearly twenty years ago since yeah. I was there. He's probably just, still out there, just beginning he, to build a wall around it. But he, yeah, but he had the biggest smile on his face I've ever seen in my life. And we all just, you know, there are many things that affect you when you go and you have a month to yourself, when you have a month with just your own thoughts. Yeah, of course, you meet lovely people on the track and you talk at meal breaks and uh, drinks breaks and things like that. And in the evening, obviously, it's a very social thing. But most of the time when you're walking, you're probably just with your own thoughts. And it's a fantastic way of getting rid of all the crap from your head being up in the Himalayas it's about keeping warm keeping fed keeping watered 
looking after yourself and those around you. And they're the only things you worry about. That's all you have to worry about. So life becomes very simple. It becomes very enjoyable as a result. And you you get to realise that insurances and car taxes <laughs> and do we need a new carpet and, you know. Shopping. So, yeah, and all the things that impinge on your life day by day that we think we don't necessarily think they're important, but they become important because of the pressure to to have all these things, to mm. do all these things, to go to all these places. It makes us so unhappy a lot of the time. Or we're fighting for the weekend. We're fighting for that two hours where we can uh, enjoy ourselves finally. All that just completely flies out of your head. And that's actually where I got the space in my head to come up with the ideas for my books. Going to Everest and then coming away from Everest, I had a clear head. And on to book number three. Yeah, yeah, and all thanks to being able to go to the Himalayas. It's an extraordinary country. This is before the terrible earthquake, mm. uh, before Kathmandu was decimated, you know, uh, the World Heritage Site, you know, almost completely eradicated. You know, this glorious country that can't feed itself, can't, can't look after itself, and that happens to it, you know. Mm. You go, uh, there is absolutely no justice. Yeah. When um, did you first go there? I uh, went in 2001. So it was a month after 9-11. We thought that our trip would be cancelled as a result, but um, we were lucky we got the go-ahead. And then we were past a, a, a wonderful place called Namchi Bazaar, where you're really up in the high foothills of uh, Everest by then. And um, the governor of the Everest region was assassinated by communist insurgents. <laughs> And they, we were too far up the up the path for them to pull us out. So, uh, you know, we were safer carrying on to Everest Base Camp than we would have been had we sort of tried around. to get back through the fun and games. And how high up have you gone? Well, so uh, Everest Base Camp's about 17,500 feet. That's fairly high. Uh, and we went to about 18,500, which is a place called Kalapatar, which is Black Rock, which is the classic view of the summit of Everest at sunset. So, uh, yeah, we're just glorious and a life's ambition to get there. My father, I was born in 57 and uh, um, we think Everest was first climbed in 53. So I was born only four years later than that. And my dad told me, was still telling me Everest stories as a young child. You know, yes, so. it's always been a magical place. Yeah, yeah. And I'm fully cognizant of the troubles that the area has, the overcrowding, the climbing for money, the people paying $60,000 to get to the top and jeopardising mm. the proper climbers getting up there, you know, being hauled up by Sherpas. And you, you, I understand a country that doesn't have much money wanting to maximise their the potential of something like that. But yes. Uh, it is a holy place, uh, Sagamatha, and uh, it should be respected as such. Uh, no one conquers the mountain, and the mountain allows them to climb it. So over 5,000 people have now summited, and one in 16 have died. Wow. Yeah, so there are tales, uh, whether how you would prove this, there, were ta- there are tales of people walking off. It's easier. They've used every single ounce of their energy getting to the top of this mountain mm-hmm. to contemplate having to get down. It's just too difficult and they walk off. Their Kangchung face is 14,000 feet straight down into China, and it's one step to put them out of the, the misery, the torment. The, their brains are befuddled, their yeah. oxygen is, is gone, they're not thinking straight, they're in the death zone, their body's mm. deteriorating. It's easier just to, to go off that, that face. Okay. But that's what they think, that's what people think. But the story of brave, the stories of bravery and uh, pushing oneself to the limit are absolutely incredible. I think there's a terrible 
danger with that single-minded, uh, driven purpose that you need to get to the top of somewhere like that. And to accomplish that is that you do it at the expense of other people. And that's a very, very fragile line. There's a famous story of a wonderful climber there, Rob Hall, who used to lead teams of uh, people uh, up but he was shepherding his troop back down after one particular climb and uh, the oxygen went and he was uh, stuck at night not far from the summit. Uh, His wife at home in New Zealand was uh, pregnant. Uh, Believe it or not, they could patch through a phone call on a walkie-talkie from him to her where they discussed the name of the child that was about to be born. Uh, he was able to sort of say, you know, good night, nurse, I'm on my way, and uh, he died. Wow. You know, I mean, I'd love to have stood on the top of Everest, but I, I don't think I would have wanted to put another human being in that position or through that. So I, I, I know that I'm not made of the... I haven't got those sort of batteries. I've, no. I, I've got a, <laughs> like a nice... Nice stiff walk up to uh, base camp and look at the view. And uh, I mean, it's the toughest thing I've ever done. It was the air's half as thin at base camp as it is at, at sea level. So, I mean, you are really struggling. You know, you're taking five paces and stopping for a breather. You know. but isn't it funny that all those misspent years, the amount of Schmirnoff under my particular bridges, <laughs> that I, the cigarettes that I smoked in my life, mm. ex smokers and smokers deal with altitude better than people who haven't smoked. Really? I think it's something to do with getting the most oxygen out of every available (laughs) intake of air that you've ever had in your life. Your body has become so good at uh, converting that into what it needs. Uh We did crack out a packet of Marlboro Lights at 18,420 feet because just because we could. We stood there because we'd been wanting one for about a month. And then, of course, we smoked all the way back down, which was stupid. (laughs) Ridiculous. (laughs) I'm not advertising anyway, people. No, no. To to start smoking just to go to uh, on a lovely month long expedition to Everest. (laughs) But if you, um, what I'm saying is, don't let it put you off. If you think I used to be a smoker, I'll never deal with it. Uh, a mate of mine, Alan Armstrong, uh, he got out of the plane at Lucla, which is 9,000 feet, and lit up a fag. Two um, fitness coaches got out and fell over because <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't deal with the, you know, the, the even at 9,000 feet, they thought, oh, I can't cope with this. Wow. Yeah. And, oh, well, there's, there's Alan standing there with a tab. Yeah. Uh, yeah, see, tougher than you think, we uh, actors. <laughs> <laughs> All those weeks in rep. <laughs> okay. Oh, what's next? No, so we will put Everest into the time cap. And we will put the whole Himalayas, let's put the whole range in there. Marvellous, what a view. I know. So we've got one more thing. Yes, I'm torn, I'm really torn. Uh, I think it ought to be something um, uh, cultural and uh, uh, John Steinbeck. Uh, my my absolute uh, passion has been uh, reading um, John Steinbeck. I haven't been back to it for 10 years. So uh, a lot of people say they read their favourite book every year. I couldn't do that because, uh, you know, I'm still revelling in the memory of it from the last time, of, of all his work, you know, whether it be Grapes of Wrath of Mice and Men, Cannery Row, all these 
wonderful books. You performed in uh, Mice uh, and Men, of, of famously. Mice, yeah, of Mice and Men was a, was a massive uh, a break for me. I, I, I've done it seven times in all. Well, when you're six foot five and a half, those those parts are uh, a bit, that, bit That's thin. my part, that yeah, and Little yeah. John. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was uh, Lenny in Of Mice and Men for a sort of generation. Someone else's turn now. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Wonderful stories. Uh, Great to Roth speaks to me like no other book. I think it's uh, the most incredible slice of America at that time and a particularly difficult time. So Steinbeck was supreme at getting all this down on paper in a uh, in a very moving and yet unsentimental way because uh, mm. he was quite a hard man. I think, uh, judging from what I've read about him, you know, I don't think he suffered fools. Uh, you know, contemporary of Woody Guthrie and. Uh, Pete Seeger and people like that. Uh, mm. I think you know they were really fighting and they were really standing up for the working man or for the way huge swathes of a population were being treated and mistreated. So uh, yeah, Steinbeck, I find his writing absolutely fascinating. He was mm. he was uh, talking of dogs. He uh, his first manuscript of, of Mice and Men, which is a, a novella. It's a you know it's a small book, was um, destroyed completely by a puppy. Uh, no. Yeah, uh, and he had to write the whole thing again. And someone said to him, oh, you know, aren't you fed up? He said, uh, I wouldn't ruin a good dog for a poor story. Uh, uh, and he rewrote it. But so, nowadays you'd store it in how many different places? I, I know. Several I, I, hard disks. Oh, I, I was tapping away last night and replacing sentences with other sentences and going, how did they do this in the old How did the, yeah. old, the old monks, they'd just done their frilly... Uh, capital letter at the beginning of the sentence <laughs> and then they, someone said no you can't begin it with that you can't begin it with a G it's got to be <laughs> it reminds me of um, an old Cambridge Footlight sketch which was uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh oh, sorry that's two words <laughs> made flesh <laughs> the, I mean, I could have plumped for Gabriel Garcia Marquez. There's a lot of authors that uh, I love, but Steinbeck it sort of does it all for me, really. Particularly with that theatrical connection, I think. Yes, it's an incredible thing. Playing Lenny, as you do, eight times a week, you know, and there was a huge emotional outburst. This is a mm. character who's um, not blessed with many O-levels. He's poor old chap. He's, uh, you know, he's struggled and he's... Uh, tantrums childish tantrums so you had literally had to cry every before but they, but they weren't sentimental tears these were tears of anguish and rage. Uh, a rage and uh, not being able to express himself mm. and uh, i want i want i want tears you know i can remember walking towards the theater you know especially when you're doing a long run yes. you know four five six months whatever it was you're walking towards the theater on that thursday matinee or wherever it was going oh my god the mountain i am got to climb twice twice today uh, and yet you do it you know, yeah. it's fantastic isn't it? i mean you get over the first one and you you look at the people around you and it's not like being in a trench i know it's not like being in a trench but there is a mentality of people who are going through something yes. in the best humour and the best possible way they can, entertaining a big room full of people, mm. giving them their money's worth. It's a fantastic feeling, really. Yes, it really is. Yeah. yeah. I've really enjoyed talking to you about the things you want to put in your oh, time that's very It's kind of been lovely. Oh, mate. In a few years, I'll come back and see if there's anything else you want exactly. to put in there. I won't be able to probably chew at that age. The thing <laughs> I would like, my original <laughs> Yes, please. But, um, what I do like would be soup. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for doing it. It's been a real pleasure. Hurrah. 
You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guests, Clive Mantle and his puppies. I think there might be a radio play in that. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And we'd love it if you would take a moment to rate us and leave a review. Thank you very much. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You just search My Time Capsule or at My TC Pod, or in fact, me. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast off production. Right. I'm going to get on with that play. Scene one, the kitchen. The whimpering of puppies can be heard in the background. Enter Clive, packing for his next trip to the Himalayas. No, I think he needs work. Bye. Bye.